Welcome to Education Beat. I'm Ann Vasquez, CEO of EdSource. California has a new math framework. It stresses teaching big ideas and concepts rather than memorizing math facts and making math relevant to all students' lives. Many students come to my class with just like this, this idea of like, I can't do math. So really a lot of it is breaking down those barriers so that my students know, hey, you know what? You are a math person and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The framework has been under fire for discouraging districts from giving advanced students algebra in eighth grade and for its approach to data science in high school. How will it change how math is taught in California and why does it matter? Here is this week's Education Beat with host Zadie Stavely. Rebecca Pariso has been a middle school math teacher for 18 years, and she's very passionate about math. You know, it's, it's everything to me. And unfortunately, I, I see the inequities on a daily basis. Here's what she means by inequities. Rebecca works in Wainemi School District near Oxnard in Ventura County. 82% of the students in her district are from low-income families. And more than two-thirds speak Spanish or Mixteco, which is an indigenous language from southern Mexico, and they were still learning English when they started school. Before she came to Wainimi, Rebecca didn't have any experience with English learners. But she soon began realizing that she needed to learn how to support them better in math. Let's say we had a word problem, and it's um, asking the students to um, predict which graph seems more reasonable. This particular word problem was about summer camp. So basically, it shows a picture of a camper hoisting a flag, and then it gave different graphs, and it was asking the students which graph would be representative of the camper hoisting the flag. Rebecca says the problem had three graphs, one with a horizontal line, one with a line that went up and then down and then back up again, and then one that went up diagonally at a steady rate. So in order to understand what those graphs and what those lines even meant, my students had to understand that word hoist and even just the context of the situation. Um, my students, many of which have never really left Oxnard, don't really understand what a summer camp is. And it wasn't just the words. If you haven't been to summer camp, or hoisted a flag before, you might not know how it's done. And without that essential background knowledge, it makes it near impossible for my students to answer it correctly and be able to dive in and think critically and problem solve and really get to the meat of the problem. So in order for students to understand the problem, Rebecca had to do a whole lot of extra work. I feel like a lot of what we have made has been created and, and built for the experiences of a white, middle-class Californian, which is great, but that's not representative of the whole state. This is Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools. I'm Zadie Stavely. This week, the new math framework. Can it bring math alive for all students? When Rebecca heard the state was thinking about creating a new framework for how to teach math, she applied to be on a committee of teachers that would give advice for what that framework should include. For her, it's a matter of equity. 
so that problems make sense for all students and don't just use contexts that don't make sense to everyone, like summer camp. That's what I think that California didn't have before, which it does now, is that idea that, hey, you know what? We're going to create something that meets the needs of all of California, that is a reflection of California and the students in California and what our California students need. Rebecca says that by the time her students come to her in seventh grade, they've had years and years of math that doesn't seem relevant to them, that's hard to understand and seems inaccessible. And then it hasn't been made clear how or why they can use the math in the future. Many students come to my class with just like this, this idea of like, I can't do math. Math is too hard. And so my students, as they, you know, they go through the years with that idea of math isn't for me. I can't do math. I always, you know, fail math. Um, I'm never going to understand it. Then they're not going to be willing to you know, participate in my class discussions or really try hard because they failed for so long. What's the point? You know, that's kind of the attitude that we get. So really a lot of it is breaking down those barriers so that my students know, hey, you know what? You are a math person and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. My esteemed colleague John Fensterwald has been following the creation of this new math framework and all the controversy surrounding it. Hi, John. Hey, Sadie. So, John, how long has this uh, math framework been in the works? It's been about four years, believe it or not, in the making from the time that the board first decided to do it until this final third draft or third version was approved earlier this month. Why did they need a new framework? Well, that's a good question. The last framework was done about 10 years ago, and there have been lots of changes since then. The realization was that kids' scores, as we know, they're terrible. It's about one out of three students is proficient in math on California state tests. And for low-income kids and Latinos and black students, it's like one out of five. So we know it needs improvement there. And We also know we want kids to take more math in high school. We want them to want to take it, not just because they have to, particularly a third year because we only require two years. And so we want them to take a third and even a fourth. So you have to develop a mindset and appreciation. And it's not too far to say a love of math in an early grades. So by the time kids get to high school and then all of a sudden it's an abstract subject they have to take but no relation to their lives. So this new version was going to be focused on getting all kids to enjoy math and to do it by not just teaching processes and algorithms like we all were taught the butterfly method of adding fractions or uh, an acronym for memorizing how to do an equation, what goes first, but we never really understood why or made sense of it. So the purpose here is to say, well, here are the concepts of math so that when you begin to do the algorithms, you sort of put it in context and you understand, oh, that makes sense. And so it turns instruction on its head because instead of starting with a process or algorithm and then solving it and then sort of figuring out, oh, that's why we did it. We start in saying, here we have a problem. Let's figure out how we're going to do this problem and how would you conceive of this? You know, if we want to do two-digit multiplication, what's the best way of, of going? And is there more than one way of 
solving a word problem. One of the ways people describe this part of the new math framework is that it emphasizes big ideas. Here's how Rebecca explains it. I work with a lot of, of other teachers, and um, a story that I like to tell them is, you know, let's say that I gave you a thousand-piece puzzle. That's going to be challenging, right? I mean, it'll take a while. But how about this? What if I gave you that thousand-piece puzzle without the picture of how all the pieces are connected together? Now put that puzzle together. It's going to take a lot longer to put that puzzle together if you have no idea what the end result is. So essentially, when we are teaching through big ideas, we're providing connections and representations so that students can see that end picture in math. They can see that what the final puzzle piece will be, and they can see how these math ideas are not isolated topics, but rather connected together. And when students can develop that understanding, they're able to um, go even further in math because they can, you know, make predictions and, and go further in their learning because they have an idea of where that concept is going in the map. Instead of just focusing on operations of how to solve an equation, the framework suggests using open-ended tasks. Here's an example of how Rebecca uses open-ended tasks. She's planning a project for the second day of school called This Is Me, There will be supplies, like popsicle sticks, all over the table, and students get to use those to create something that represents them. But they have to choose which supplies and how many they use based on a budget. So say a student wants to use some of the popsicle sticks for their project. They have to write down how many popsicle sticks and how much each one costs, and then how much all of them together cost. Which is... You know, also what's really important because oftentimes we get into these situations where it's like, yes, I can multiply a decimal. Yes, I can divide a decimal, but I can't apply it. And so that's where this project comes in is like really assessing that prior knowledge. And like, for instance, one of the unit rates was like on the calculator, 0.52166666. And my students are like, wait, what do I do with that? And so then again, we have to connect that in. Well, what does that really mean? What are we doing right now? Why are we doing this? Oh, we're finding the unit rate. And that unit rate there is dealing with money. And I know that money would only have the numbers in two decimal places. So then they can form their answer. And, you, and, you know, I think as teachers, sometimes I know for me, sometimes I, I would just kind of assume that that's knowledge that students already know. But unfortunately, um, it's knowledge that we need to give our students so that they can experience it. Because a lot of the, the missing pieces in California math has been that whole application. Why am I doing this? What does this mean? For Rebecca, this is a project that accomplishes several things at once. One, it assesses students' prior knowledge of sixth grade math. Two, it shows them how they can use this math in real life. And three, it helps Rebecca understand her students and their identities. John, what's some of the opposition to this idea of like big ideas? So it's very verbal intensive, a lot of discussion, a lot of figuring out. It's time consuming. And there's a concern that processes, algorithms, just learning your math facts may get diminished. And so I think there's a school of thought that says you need to focus. You can't lose that because if if you get to sixth grade and you don't know fractions, you're always going to be behind. Or if you get to third grade and subtracting, addition aren't automatic for you, that really is going to hold you back and you go through grade to grade and you never catch up. 
That was the main concern. And I guess the argument is balance. And, and often in, in these debates, balance gets lost. It's either polarizing big ideas or algorithms when, in fact, good teachers will say, well, you got to do both. And sometimes in the debate over this, it, it becomes polarized as if reading and other things we've discovered, social studies, you know, you get branded as an ideology. And so, oh, liberals want to do verbal math where there's no right answer and others traditionalists say, no, no, do your times table today before we do anything else. And so, you know, good teaching incorporates both. And so that's the middle that I think teachers eventually will strive for. So I know you compiled a sample of comments from right before the final framework was adopted. There was a comment period and you, and you compile a sample of those comments. Can you share what some of those comments said? Yeah, happy to. There were like 600 comments. And so we compiled about 60. And this will give you uh, a little bit of a sample, if I will. So this is, I support the revised framework because it was developed based on research on how kids' brains work alongside research on how to create more inclusive environments. This approach is much more equitable and will allow kids with different learning styles to succeed. And then there's another one, putting the social justice, which is an emphasis, putting that uh, in perspective. It says, adding a totally unrelated layer will confuse and dilute the standalone value and importance of mathematical concepts. The goal should be students seeing themselves as mathematically capable individuals whose curiosity and love of math will be sustained throughout their schooling. And then here's a teacher, former teacher. This is what kids need to better grasp complex math concepts. And here's one which I love since we've been spending a lot of time on early literacy. California seems to be all set to make exactly the same disastrous mistake with math than the U.S. did for 40 years with reading, choosing an ideological approach with very weak evidence and ignoring a strong evidence-based approach. So that gives you a sense of the debate. And I think people put a lot of thought and people care passionately about math. John, so actually, now that you mentioned social justice and the commenters mentioned social justice, there's this idea in the framework of teaching towards social justice. What, what is that and what does it have to do with math? That's what a lot of people are asking. And I think, frankly, it created a debate which isn't necessary. Because if you put math in terms of related to kids' everyday lived experience so that they can identify it, that is, quote, social justice, but it makes kids understand and appreciate and perhaps apply math, which is what you want to do when you're an adult. So, you know, maybe it might be um, if it's social justice, say count the number of grocery stores in, in a block uh, and compare that to uh, neighbor, wealthier neighborhoods where there are groceries and, and the number of uh, dollar stores, for example. And those kinds of things that relate fractions and graphs to real things that people are interested in. And I think it gets a bad name because all of a sudden you say social justice, math teachers think, oh gosh, not only is it hard to teach math, but now I have to teach social justice and I have to worry about parents. And I, I just think it was an unnecessary framing for making math relevant, which is what we want to do. Rebecca says the new framework also helps teachers like her with lots of English language learners in their classes because it includes tips for making math accessible. 
we have this idea that writing is so important in, you know, language arts and, and social studies, whatever that class may be, but not in mathematics. So when you tell me to, you know, give my students a language frame in mathematics that explains how they found their answer, that's, that's not comfortable for me. I'm not used to that. A language frame is the beginning or skeleton of a sentence that helps students structure their own sentences. I used to think blank, but now I think blank. Or I found my answer by blank. And it doesn't seem like it's that important. You're like, well, that's, that's not even a big deal. It is a big deal. Our multilingual learners need these strategies. You know, they, they need that, that help. John, one of the other contentious points is the idea of whether or not to offer Algebra 1 in eighth grade, whether or not to offer basically accelerated programs for advanced students. Right. So can you sort of set up the whole debate um, on on that and, and explain to us what the what the problem is? Yeah. So the issue is when to teach Algebra 1, which is required. So if you begin in ninth grade, which is what the framework really encourages, it makes it harder to get to calculus and become a STEM major. If you begin in eighth grade, it's easier to do that without doing an acceleration or summer school or, or condensed course in high school. The issue of some students taking eighth grade and others not is the idea of tracking. And that some kids are identified too early as, oh, well, they're good at math and other kids aren't. Well, in fact, you can develop a love of math along the way it would pigeonhole people and we did it for decades, which is to say, here are the advanced kids, here are the other kids, usually low-income kids and they got the least experienced teachers and it's sort of a track to nowhere. So the idea was to encourage in, in the um, framework all kids to begin algebra in ninth grade. It's not required, again, this is a local control. Districts can decide who, and in fact, there's a state law the Math Placement Act, it's been in effect about eight years, which says schools have an obligation to enable kids to progress in ninth grade and eighth grade at their own speed and ability. So that sometimes gets lost. But the eighth grade algebra became, you know, a very polarizing issue. But some some districts have gotten rid of Algebra 1 completely in eighth grade, right, John? Yeah, so what happened was we're sort of reacting to the last <laughs> crisis we had, which was all kids were encouraged to take algebra in eighth grade in the early 2000s. In fact, there was a penalty for districts that didn't do that, and studies showed that that was very unsuccessful, and kids were not ready for it, and they had to repeat. So then some districts, like San Francisco, required that all students take algebra in ninth grade, and the idea was, well, kids were going to get an extra year of preparation for high school math, and we have the ability to advance anyway in high school through summer school, etc. But there was a lot of bad data about that experience. In fact, Stanford did a study which showed it didn't really work. It didn't close the opportunity gap, but it did hold back students who really were ready to take algebra in eighth grade and become those often wanted to become STEM majors in college. 
Plus, it's very difficult for teachers to teach such a range of math without boring kids who get it. At the same time, you're bringing along students who never got fractions, as we talked about, and are way behind. And others in the Bay Area that don't offer it at all for eighth graders. Which is equally inequitable for those students who could do it. The framework has been edited to make it clear districts can offer Algebra 1 in eighth grade. But it still does encourage districts to consider embedding honors or advanced courses into regular courses, rather than separating students out for advanced classes. Rebecca's own school did this. She used to teach honors math classes at her school. And then she took a break for personal reasons. And when she returned, she wasn't assigned to teach honors anymore. And I started to think about how can I lower the expectations on this? You know, what can I get rid of on this so that it meets the needs of standard students? But every time I started thinking about that, I got this awful feeling in my stomach because I, that's just, that's awful, right? Like you shouldn't be lowering the standards. All students deserve to learn math at the highest level. So Rebecca started giving all students the option of doing honors level work. I was amazed by the results that I found at the end of the year. I actually had a lot of students that I wouldn't have thought would want to complete the project. They did. They wanted to do more. Rebecca even found that students with disabilities who were struggling in most classes were doing honors level work in her class. I would be sitting in IEP meetings and teachers would be talking and I'm like, well, you know, this student has been doing all the requirements for honors level work. And, you know, just educators and parents are like, wait, what? Because, you know, we had placed them into a certain category or a certain spot. After that experimental year, Rebecca met with her principal and other teachers, and they decided to embed honors within their regular courses. What that means is that all students have certain assignments they have to complete. And in addition, they can all decide if they're going to go beyond and do extra honors level assignments. You know, I think oftentimes, you know, I have, you know, been in the habit or, you know, other teachers too, where we place the students into categories. Like we decide who's honors. Well, you know, I don't think that that's fair. And when you're embedding honors into a standard level class, you're offering that support to all students. So, John, we've talked about big ideas. Um, we've talked about, you know, Algebra 1 in eighth grade and the contentious issues there. There was one other point that you describe in your articles um, that was kind of a point of contention, which was this whole um, thing about data science. Can you explain that? Right. At first, the creators of the framework were charged with putting way too much emphasis on on data science as an alternative to STEM. And so that got deleted in the second draft. But there was still the sense that the problem is you're, you're creating a data science course and its students were led with the impression that a data science without a core of Algebra 2 was somehow going to prepare them to become a data science major in college, which it wouldn't do. And so the issue that upset so many professors was UC began approving data science courses that satisfied Algebra 2 when in fact there was very little math in those courses. And so this relates to UC and how it approves courses, but I think it was a transparency issue and not the issue of whether or not we should offer courses like statistics and data science 
and and algebra math, for example, for those who want to become finance majors in, in college. The issue is not alternatives. The issue, again, is transparency. Okay. And so in the end, the framework de-emphasizes that a little bit? It did, it, it, because it's not the role of a framework to guide or encourage one chemistry over physics or data science over math. But it is yet to be resolved because a lot of this resides with UC and with the standards that it approves for various courses, UC determines that. Okay. So regardless of all the controversy, the math framework has been approved now by the State Board of Education. What's next? So what's next is uh, training. And it's really critical because the professional development um, under the new standards, we talked about how different it is. And, and so it will require a, a much more extensive training than occurred after the last framework in 2013. It was all focused on common core and not how you teach it creatively and engagingly. And so I expect that there will be an effort to train over the next year. The question is whether the legislature recognizes it. And again, there's a parallel with reading and pour a lot of money so that teachers actually learn how to teach this. And that's the big question. And textbook publishers then, this is going to be a major undertaking for them as well because uh, there's no cut and paste for this one. They really have to pay attention. California's instructions are very clear and its approach is very clear. And so they need to rewrite that to meet the standards to sell their textbooks in California. Got it. So that might take a couple of years. I think so. Thank you so much, John. Always enjoy being here. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Education Beat, getting to the heart of California schools, a production of EdSource. You can find John's stories on the new math framework at edsource.org. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Special thanks to our guests, Rebecca Pariso and John Fensterwald. Our CEO is Anne Vasquez. Our theme music is from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm Zadie Stavely. Join us next week and subscribe so you won't miss an episode.